Hello, and welcome to the ATS Rx podcast, the podcast that takes complex issues involving medication use in the ICU and breaks it down into practical and usable information for the bedside. This podcast is presented to you by the American Thoracic Society Clinical Pharmacist Working Group. The working group was established in 2019 and is currently co-chaired by Drs. DePauli Dixit and Mark Melsker. My name is Dr. Marilyn Bullock. I'm an Associate Clinical Professor of Pharmacy Practice and the Director of Strategic Operations at the Auburn University Harrison College of Pharmacy, and I will be moderating today's podcast. Our podcast is meant to discuss all things related to medication, pharmacy, and more from the pharmacist's perspective. The podcast is for educational purposes only. We will cover material that represents the approach, view, and opinion of our speaker that may be helpful to others, but do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of ATS. In today's episode, we will talk about the reality of drug interactions, discuss which ones may have been overhyped, some that you may not be aware of but should, and how to manage them from a practical perspective. We're joined today by a pharmacist who has a very extensive background in training. It's a little bit unique in pharmacy and is probably the best person out there at the current moment to talk about drug interactions. I've had the pleasure of knowing our guest today for a number of years. Dr. Todd Miata is a critical care pharmacist in the surgical ICU at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. He's also an assistant professor of epidemiology at the Perlman School of Medicine. He received a doctor of pharmacy degree from the Virginia Commonwealth University, completed a critical care pharmacy residency at Wake Forest University Medical Center, and received a doctor of philosophy degree in epidemiology from the University of Pennsylvania. He is an elected fellow of the American College of Critical Care Medicine and an executive editor of the British Journal of Clinical Pharmacology. He has federally funded research program leverages prospectively collected molecular data and large electronic health record databases to study two critically important areas within acute care pharmacoepidemiology, drug-associated acute kidney injury and the health effects of drug interactions. So Todd, that is a mouthful, but I am very excited that you're able to join us today. And is, uh, when I'm introducing and you and hearing all of the incredible things, and I, of course, I know some of the backstory and other things that you've done, you've had a very interesting career, especially for someone who's pretty young, relatively speaking. It's definitely not been the normal path for a pharmacist. So start us off by walking us through how you've gotten to where you are today. Sure. Well, um, thanks so much for having me. Um, and uh, it's always nice to still uh, have folks refer to me as pretty young. So that's so that's nice. Um, yeah, so I, I would agree. My path is, is not uh, common um, necessarily. I um, uh, was first exposed to research like many um, critical care pharmacists. Um, during my PGY-1 and PGY-2 residencies um, and was just fortunate to have a, a really good experience. I had a, a preceptor who had a really great research idea and, and he had a team that included uh, uh, methodologists and, and statisticians that could help us design the project. Um, and it, you know, it was a really a great experience and, and was probably one of my favorite aspects of my uh, pharmacy residency training. and you know, after that, moving forward, I, I knew that I wanted to have research as a, you know, a big part of my career. And I envisioned the model for that to be, you know, what is more familiar to pharmacists, where you are a preceptor within a, a pharmacy residency program, and you work with students and residents on projects, um, and, and you know, have that be the model to drive my research. Um, and, you know, given my success during my residency, I, you know, I came out of residency very confident you know, I was going to take over the world and do all the best research, you know, uh, uh, that that could be done. Um, and then I got, you know, I, I uh, entered practice at the uh, Hospital University of Pennsylvania as a, a full-time clinician in, in the surgical ICU. Um, and, you know, and I kind of came back down to reality. Um, 
you know, I, so I, I started trying to work in a collaborative fashion with um, the intensivists in my group. Um, and, you know, we did small retrospective chart review type uh, studies. And, um, and, you know, over time, I started to realize, you know, the, the real challenges that, that, you know, folks face trying to do research. Um, as a clinician, you have limited time. So a lot, you know, oftentimes you're doing this on nights and weekends. Um, and perhaps more importantly, I, I didn't really have the knowledge, you know, I didn't have the, the skills. Uh, I didn't know how to, you know, I had some limited experience, but, um, you know, I didn't really know what, for example, confounding was or selection bias or immortal time or, or these other things. So, um, so I didn't really know what I was doing either. Um, and so th this, you know, uh, after about five or six years as practicing as a full-time clinician, um, I, you know, I started really um, realizing that I wanted to, to explore further training in research. Um, and so, and it, I just happened to kind of in a serendipitous fashion meet um, Sean Hennessy, who is a um, epidemiologist and pharmacist at the at Penn um, in a pharmacy uh, PNT committee meeting. Um, and, and, and by the end of that meeting, he had recruited me into um, his research fellowship, which involves um, uh, obtaining a master's degree in clinical epidemiology. And so that was um, my first step towards um, a career in research. Um, and um, so I eventually uh, continued on and, and got my um, uh, PhD in epidemiology submitted a, a K career development award um, and was recently appointed as an assistant professor. Um, and so that's, um, yeah, so that, that kind of brings us um, to today. Uh, and so, um, you know, a lot of it was kind of just, you know, figuring out uh, and soul searching over time. And then, you know, a, a lot of luck involved too, kind of meeting the right person at the right time. You definitely are using words that I'm sure a lot of us <laughs> that are in practice, we remember learning, but I'm not sure we've seen it in a long time. I think you're probably a, one of the most valuable members of that research team. And your work has focused a lot on drug optimization, um, a lot in the ICU, but not, not exclusively. And although it hasn't been your only focus, I would say a fair amount of your research has been on those drug-drug interactions, um, particularly those which have not been well studied, but still impact clinical practice. How did you get interested in that area? Yeah, I, I think so. In part, it um, my my mentor, Sean Hennessy, he does a lot of work in drug-drug interactions focused um, in the ambulatory care setting. So his work leverages large ad, ad, um, administrative data uh, uh, like Medicare and, and Medicaid claims data um, to study drug-drug interactions. Um, and, uh, um, and so that seems, you know, that was an area that uh, hadn't really fully been ex explored in the acute care setting. Um, and you know, as a clinician, you're you're rounding on a patient. They're on a combination. You you go to Micromedics or uh, LexiComp, and you see that whether well, there's a warning about this drug combination, you kind of look more into the evidence of you know how how much do I need to worry about this interaction? And oftentimes, the evidence supporting um, uh, the interaction might be a number of case reports or some pharmacokinetic studies where they show the AUC for drug exposure changes by a given percent. Um, and, and often that's all that you have to work with. And, and as you well know, oftentimes, you know, it's, it's hard to make decision, clinical decisions based on that information. Um, and oftentimes it's drug combinations that we really need to be, you know, there's often a, a strong clinical indication for each drug. Um, and so realizing kind of, and so when you go to the literature, most, um, most uh, evidence is, is uh, of that nature. Um, case reports, pharmacokinetic studies. Um, there are, you know, you could probably count on one hand the number of randomized controlled trials of drug-drug interactions specifically. Um, so it's, 
it's a um, it's an area that is you know so it's a common clinical challenge that is doesn't have a lot of great evidence supporting many of the interactions um, and you know and, and the numbers are kind of staggering if you um, if you go across all drugs that are used in clinical practice and the number of hypothesized drug drug interactions that are possible it's in the hundreds of thousands. Um, so it, it's a big problem. There's not a lot of evidence. And so it seems like, a, you know, it's a place where good quality research could could really make an impact. So that's that really, you know, that that really caught my attention. It seemed like a, a place where, I, um, you, you know, it was a good place to, to focus. That's such an important point. You know, you and I both are in different schools um, and our, our students, both pharmacy and medical when they see something's an interaction, they often take it as gospel. You know, they don't think about where it came from, what backs it up, um, or that even you can manage it most of the time. And you and I are sort of contemporaries. Um, we're not that far apart in training, maybe by a year. And when we were in school and going through residency and things like that, it was really normal to see, say, for example, one that comes to mind to me is Piperacillin Tazobactam and vancomycin. They were used together in, in like everybody, right? Especially in the ICU. If you had pneumonia, you had anything, you know, you would use those two. And, and more often than not, we we combined it with a third agent, like an aminoglycoside or a fluoroquinolone. And then around what, like 2011, these studies started coming out about the risk of nephrotoxicity when using vancomycin and, and piperacillin tazobactam together. And I'll admit, like, I'm I'm even one of those, I, I was on a study that seemed to suggest that there really was an interaction. Now, we weren't powered to look for that. We were looking for something else. So it's sort of an external, like a surprise that we found. But I've just always found it interesting because, you know, we don't normally think about piperacillin tazobactam as being nephrotoxic. You know, historically, it just hasn't been one of those drugs. So can you walk us through how this once almost like beloved antibiotic combination became so questionable to use together? Yeah, so I, I agree. It's um, it's a kind of it's been a remarkable story that's been playing out over you know almost a decade now. Um, I, I remember the first time I was exposed to this idea was actually on the um, ACCP um, uh, listserv, uh, the PRN, um, where I can, you know, a couple of emails where uh, folks were asking, has anyone noticed maybe uh, a higher uh, acute kidney injury incidence when folks are on, on this combination? And then, you know, shortly thereafter, the first abstracts were at um, the SECM meeting, um, and then, and, and and to be honest, initially, I never gave any credence to the idea at all. The first studies that came out, I just kind of assumed it was all confounding by indication because those, the initial studies would compare in, in patients treated with vancomycin, compare those that got piptazo versus those that did not. And in that scenario, um, you're not only comparing piptazo versus no piptazo, but you're also comparing the indication or the need for gram-negative coverage versus, uh, you know, no gram-negative coverage. And, and we know those are, you know, really different patient populations. Um, and so, the, you know, those initial studies I never really took seriously, but over time, as more and more studies. And now there's, there's, you know, upwards of 60 or 70 different observational studies that have reproduced this association with creatinine-defined acute kidney injury. Um, so it's, um, uh, so it, it's kind of remarkable how um, this, this drug combination that includes two of the most commonly used antibiotics um, in all of um, acute care uh, you know, hospital care. In, in 2016, Vanco and Piptazo were the two most commonly used antibiotics, accounting for over 13 million days of antibiotic therapy. Um, and so there's kind of this potential nephrotoxic combination hiding in plain sight. Um, and so, you know, uh, you like like many others, you know, over time we we started to take this seriously and 
Um, and you've, you know, there are uh, studies that describe health systems where they put in alerts and, and interventions to try to avoid the combination. Um, and so I, I would think, you know, I would say now going from, uh, you know, dogma is that every, you know, everyone when they are admitted to the hospital gets this, this drug combination to now, I, I think it's, it's gotten to where it's been fairly well accepted that the drug, the combination is in fact um, nephrotoxic. Um, now, you know, I, beyond the, just the sheer number of studies that have uh, reproduced the association, what, what I was always kind of curious about or question is, is what is the mechanism that, that is driving the interaction? Um, as you mentioned, um, historically, we don't view piperacillin-tazobactam as being inherently nephrotoxic outside of rare, uh, you know, fairly rare cases of uh, acute interstitial nephritis. Um, and so beyond that, in what way would um, exposure to piperacillin-tazobactam enhance the nephrotoxicity of vancomycin? And, and I would say still to this day, it's not clear. There hasn't really been a a very clear mechanism put forth. Um, and so that always kind of stuck in the back of my mind, you know, um, and, and made me question the, the nature of the association. And, and thinking about that, you know, on rounds one day, and we had a patient was on um, Bactrim, uh, which is a drug that, you know, we commonly are, are we're familiar with the idea that some drugs um, alter creatinine handling in the kidneys. In, in particular, um, you know, some creatinine is secreted in the proximal tubules by various transporters. Uh, and we know that some drugs can block that secretion and cause an acute increase in creatinine concentration um, that can sometimes be um, mistaken or misconstrued for um, a change in kidney function related to kidney injury. Um, and so thinking about this patient on Bactrim, you know, the idea kind of hit me. I wonder if something like this could be also happening with Piperacillin and Tazobactam in patients that are on vancomycin. Um, and so you kind of go to the literature and find it, that there are a handful of studies that, that have suggested that, that both Vanco and Piptazo are bind to transporters that have been implicated in creatinine secretion. And so it sets up a a potential mechanism to explain the association so that, um, in fact, the association with creatinine change or increases in creatinine may, may be a true real association, but it, it may represent what um, we've kind of been referring to as a, a pseudotoxicity, a, a change in creatinine that is not the result of kidney injury or a change in kidney function. And you, you mentioned some of this already, but from what I understand, most of the studies and really from the mid 2010s onward were these retrospective correlation studies really focused on increased creatinine levels, but they really didn't show or evaluate clinical impact of that rise. And um, in 2022, you were the lead author on a paper that looked at Bank and Zosin together from a, a different perspective. You looked at a different biomarker, um, specifically cystatin C. You know, of all the potential renal biomarkers, how did your team decide to evaluate that one? Is it have more clinically relevant impact on kidney function? What sort of made you go in that direction. Uh, yeah, I, uh, that that's a great question, and and the answer is it's it's kind of what we could measure. Um, so, uh, so we we had this hypothesis that the the change in creatinine may not reflect actual injury, and so how do we test that uh, hypothesis? Well, one way would be to examine the combination with an alternative biomarker, something that's you know a marker that is not subject to secretion um, in the kidney tubules. Um, and so there are a number of different markers that we could examine. There are, um, you know, several um, markers that are directly reflective of kidney injury, um, like uh, INGAL, KIM-1, the cell cycle arrest markers. Those are all urine, measured in urine. Um, and so those would be great candidates to test this hypothesis. Um, 
unfortunately, we didn't have access, you know, we didn't have a, a large bank of um, patients who had urine um, measured where we could examine the biomarker concentrations. Um, but we did have access to a, a fairly large prospective cohort of patients where we had stored plasma samples. And in those samples, we could measure cystatin C, um, which is a marker of kidney function. Um, so it's a, um, a cystatin C is a protein that is secreted by all nucle nucleated cells in the body, which makes it less sensitive to effects of changes in muscle mass. Um, and it has relative to creatinine a shorter half-life um, so that in, at least in theory, you might be able to see changes in kidney function um, uh, faster than uh, what you would see with creatinine. Um, and it's been validated as an, you know, to have equal um, or in certain scenarios, a better accuracy for kidney function relative to creatinine. And in 2012, the CKD Epi group um, validated, uh, published a, a validation study of a, of a GFR estimating equation based on cystatin C. Um, and so there, there was good precedence for using cystatin C as a kind of a gold standard um, uh, alternative uh, marker of kidney function. And so, um, so our idea was to contrast changes in, in creatinine in patients treated with the, the combination of vanco and piptazo, contrast creatinine changes with changes in cystatin C, our hypothesis being that if, if the association is, is pseudotoxicity, we would see a, an, a change in creatinine associated with piptazo, uh, but no change or no association with cystatin C. Um, so that, that's what we set out to test. It's crazy, all these biomarkers that are on the horizon. It, it kind of makes me wonder what we'll be using in practice. And if, you know, not, not maybe, at least before we retire, if not much sooner. Um, do you think um, cystatin C will be something that we're going to be using more at the bedside in the future? Because I know I'm not using it right now, but you know, it would be interesting to think, you know, five, 10 years, it might be something that I'm using a lot more than I'm using creatinine. Yeah, I, I think there definitely is a role for cystatin C and, and we likely should see, um, you know, I think it would make sense to use it more often. Um, what, you know, is it, is, is it something that should you know, replace creatinine. Um, I, I'm I'm not sure. So, um, so cystatin C definitely has some advantages relative to creatinine. You know, as I mentioned, shorter half life, uh, less affected by changes in muscle mass, and so those are some key advantage. So those are potentially advantageous in critically ill patients, um, especially you know considering you know the changes in muscle mass that happen during critical illness. You know, some studies have estimated you know, that patients lose up to 10% of their muscle mass per week. Um, and so, uh, you know, a patient in, that's been in the ICU for three weeks and, you know, their creatinine concentration means something different than when it did uh, upon admission. And that creates, you know, that creates a lot of challenges in, in terms of determining what a patient's true kidney function is. So, Cystatin C potentially could avoid that issue. Um, uh, importantly, however, th there are some other caveats, you know, there are some important caveats with cystatin C, namely, uh, cystatin C concentrations are, uh, can be increased by inflammation um, and uh, by treatment with corticosteroids, particularly large doses. Um, and so that's, that could be a big challenge. I mean, most patients that are in the ICU have some degree of inflammation going on. Um, and so, you know, I don't know that, that we have a good idea of what is a normal cystatin C concentration for patients that, that don't have, you know, that have normal kidney function that, that are in the ICU. Um, so, so that's, that's a kind of a big rate limiting factor. Um, so, and something that we need to just use the, use it more and have additional studies to kind of get a, a better sense for that. Um, cystatin C is also substantially more expensive. Um, 
so the the this, the assay persistency cost about four dollars per test compared to you know less than um, twenty cents per test for for creatinine, and so that is a is a big factor that limits you know broad implementation at at the health system level. Um, and uh, and and for that reason, at most centers, it's a send out test. And so it, at Penn, it, it we can use it, but it's a send out, and so the turnaround is you know two to three days, and that, that's not super helpful in the ICU where you know kidney function is is, is changing hour to hour. Um, so I, I think there's certainly um, a role for it. And there are a number of clinical scenarios where I think it would be helpful to have sustency. Um, but, you know, we've still got a lot to learn about the, the marker um, uh, to you know, kind of use it more routinely. That's just kind of fascinating to hear how all of that works. Now, what did y'all find in the study? You know, can I start using bank and Tazo again, or is that going to be an indefinite no-go type of situation? I, I think that is a that's a great question, and I don't know that that we have uh, the answer yet. Um, so, in, in our study, we um, we examined cystatency, change in cystatency, and creatinine um, over the initial forty-eight hours after antibiotic initiation. Um, and what we showed is that creatinine um, at 48 hours, roughly, uh, creatinine um, was significantly elevated in patients uh, treated with bank plus pitazo compared to vancomycin uh, uh, in combination with cefepime. Uh, so, uh, so bank pitazo associated with significantly increased creatinine at 48 hours, but was not associated with change in cystatency. In fact, the cystatency concentrations tended towards being lower in patients um, uh, in the, the piptazo arm. Um, in addition, we looked at uh, clinical outcomes that are thought to be downstream of acute kidney injury, including the need for renal replacement therapy um, and mortality, hospital mortality, um, and, and found no association with those outcomes um, either. And so you know, across these results, it's consistent with the idea that um, that the association with creatinine is a pseudotoxicity, uh, and so um, so so those results were really really interesting. But but I think it's still premature to to take our study and as a complete refutation of you know the sixty five previous um, studies that that show this association. Um, so we measured cystatency as an alternative, but we only had cystatency in a, in a subset of patients in our study, 192 patients. Um, and so certainly, um, you know, I don't know if data from 192 patients is enough to change practice. Uh, and, you know, our study, like, like all others, is, uh, you, you know, use a, although it was a prospective study, it's still an observational study. And so, Concerns about confounding by ind indication um, are, is, you know, still important. So, so I think our data hopefully maybe brings the literature in, in clinical practice closer to equipoise as it relates to this question. And so I, I don't, you know, I think before our study was published, most people accept, accepted it as, as a proven fact that the, the combination is nephrotoxic. Now, I, I don't think that we we can say that for sure. Um, and I think ultimately, like most questions, um, you know, a larger perspective, potentially randomized controlled trials is, is going to be needed to kind of, um, you know, you know, fully refute or confirm the nature of the association. Um, so uh, so our group is in, and I know other folks are as well, are, are kind of working in that direction to, to try to to do the larger definitive studies to, to hopefully get an answer um, once and for all. It's such an important point. I can't think of the number of times since I've been practicing that, you know, we'll, we'll get some information and we'll, we'll almost take it as gospel only to turn around and have 
a study like yours be like, are you sure? Like maybe we need to, to rethink that or look into it just a little bit more. Let's talk about some of your work in other interactions. You know, for example, benzodiazepines, you know, they've been the most frequent prescribed drugs, both inside and outside of the hospital longer than you and I have been pharmacists. And you were part of a study that looked at the risk of benzodiazepine interactions with other drugs in relation to trauma and traumatic injury. And I thought some of the signals that you found made perfect sense. You know, we've known to expect an interaction between benzodiazepines and hydrocodone. That was kind of no surprise, but there were some surprises. So tell us about some of the more interesting, maybe less obvious interactions that you found. Walk us through why you think they occur. Maybe why we, why, why should we care? What do we do about them? Uh, yeah, so it, um, uh, great question. Uh, this work you're, you're referencing is, is led by um, Charlie Leonard, who's a, a pharmacist, a researcher here at Penn who focuses on drug-drug interactions as well. And um, uh, yeah, so uh, the, the um, I, I previously kind of talked about just the magnitude of, uh, you know, the, the tens, hundreds of thousands of potential drug-drug interactions um, and, you know, as a researcher trying to, whose goal is to uh, examine potential drug-drug interactions and determine which ones are actually, you know, truly associated with, um, you know, adverse health outcomes, you know, clinically meaningful health outcomes um, beyond just, you know, theoretical changes in, in plasma concentration, for example. Um, so, uh, so that, that's a, a big challenge or uh, in, in the field of research is identifying which interactions are the ones that we should go after with large kind of confirmatory studies. Um, and so um, one way to approach this is to do a screening study. And, and so the, the, the studies uh, here are, are those uh, are, are screening studies where we um, identify a, an object drug of interest. So in this case, it's benzodiazepines um, as a class. Um, and screen all drugs that are given concomitantly um, with, with benzodiazepines and, and look for signals of interaction. Uh, and so we to do this, we use the uh, self-controlled case series study design, which is a, a case-only study design. So to implement this, we query a large claims database here, um, uh, the uh, uh, Optum um, uh, healthcare uh, claims data, and um, identify all patients who in that database who received um, a benzodiazepine of interest uh, and kind of identify um, exposure episodes. So, you know, we follow patients from when they initiated therapy to when therapy was um, finished. And then within that cohort of users of benzodiazepines, we identify all the, the adverse health outcomes of interest. So in this case, uh, in this instance, it's um, traumatic injury uh, was the outcome of interest with the idea being that, you know, sedative effects from benzodiazepines could, you know, uh, lead to risk of falls or motor vehicle accidents um, kind of driving under the influence of, of benzodiazepines. And, and that, you know, added, you know, the, the effect of other drugs enhancing those effects um, and, and increasing the risk of falls. Um, so in this, uh, in this study, we identify users of benzodiazepines, we identify the, the traumatic injury events, uh, and then within those patients, so these are patients who were on a benzodiazepine and had a traumatic event, we look at concomitant drug exposure over time within a patient. And so the analysis compares person time exposed to benzodiazepines alone versus person time exposed to both benzodiazepines and a second drug uh, given concomitantly. Um, and so it, if the, the interaction increases the risk of a traumatic event, then the rate during um, combined exposure would, um, should be higher than 
when benzodiazepines are given alone. Um, and so the, the nice thing about the self-control case series is that it's because patients are compared to uh, uh, themselves. Uh, so each person serves as their own control, which serves to control or, or, or um, address uh, between person confounding. So um, things like you know, chronic illnesses that, that don't change over time or, or demographic factors. Uh, genetic factors, things that are constant over time, the self-control case series um, provides really good control of confounding from those types of factors. Um, and so we screen all drugs given concomitantly. So in this study, you know, there's hundreds of different concomitant drugs that we screened um, and then apply some statistical techniques to, to, to attempt to minimize false positives uh, th that are generated from multiple comparisons. Uh, and then look to see, you know, which uh, which drug combinations signal uh, as you know being associated with a higher risk of traumatic injury um, after correction for for multiple comparisons. And so, you know, there's a long, as you mentioned, there's a long list of drugs, um, you know, uh, dozens of drugs that signal. And many, um, I you know, I think <clears throat> would make intuitive kind of clinical sense. Some many drugs that have sedative effects. Um, uh, like uh, uh, gabapentin um, and and um, uh, skeletal muscle relaxants, um, so you know signals of additive uh, uh, or, or synergistic central nervous system depression. Um, so a number of those uh, combinations um, of, uh, were of interest, um, but then we we had a lot of signals that, as you mentioned, may, make less sense. So. Uh, in particular, anti-infectives, um, things like uh, trimethoprim sulfa, uh, amoxicillin, you know, other antibiotics that we wouldn't expect um, to be, you know, they don't have sedative effects. It's not clear. Yeah, it, there isn't an obvious pharmacokinetic interaction uh, driving the association. Um, and so, I, so I, I think the important thing to keep in mind with this study is, is the, the intent of the study was to screen, um, uh, you know, as a screening step, um, you know, given the, the, the large number of potential interactions that are out there, and then, you know, many interactions that we may not yet know about that, that have an unidentified mechanism. Um, so the goal here is to identify candidate signals that, uh, we would then follow up with confirmatory studies to either, you know, confirm or strengthen the, the signal or, or refute it in, in follow-up studies. Um, so, so a lot of this, the signals, especially with, um, you know, like the anti-infectives, for example, you know, have other, you know, alternative explanations that, uh, you know, are likely due to either confounding by indication um, or potentially reverse causation. Um, and so that's particularly likely important in the, with the case of anti-infectives. Um, so, you know, it's common for patients, you know, depending on the type of traumatic injury that you have, um, if, you know, there's um, any uh, aspect of the injury where there's an open wound, um, patients will receive antibiotics as prophylaxis for infection. And so in that scenario, the, it may be the injury event that's driving uh, the use of antibiotics. And so, um, so the association is, you know, it's the, the injury is causing the antibiotics rather than vice versa. Um, so, you know, that would be an instance of, of reverse causation. So when we do these studies, we um, we we look at these signals and and you know try to you know go through all the potential uh, explanations for the findings um, and and then you know novel signals that um, that are not easily explained away by bias um, we then follow up with confirmatory studies uh, to kind of validate uh, the signal um, and so uh, in in particular. Uh, a combination that we're we're looking at um, in in follow up studies um, are the uh, the triptans uh, you know kind of as a class um, 
uh, as having particularly um, high risk of uh, sedative effects and a variety of related outcomes to that, including um, overdose outcomes and, and injury outcomes. Um, and so th those follow-up studies we're currently working on. That's going to be a fascinating paper, I think, when it comes out. You know, just it seems like you maybe have opened a little bit of Pandora's box. There are probably thousands of these papers on drug-drug interactions out there. But as you mentioned earlier, most of them are retrospective studies. Um, you know, earlier this year, in the start of 2023, your, your group published about the importance of causal inference on drug-drug interactions. Now, you have a lot more experience and, and wealth of knowledge in epidemiology than maybe the average clinician does. But for those of us who are out there in practice and we still want to contribute to the literature and to the research in the academy, how can clinicians and researchers structure their studies in the future, not only to detect these key interactions, um, but also to ensure that we're showing causality as well? Uh, a great question, uh, you know, and I, I think this is an issue that's that's important for drug drug interactions, but really any study of you know drug effects in um, you know outside of of randomized controlled trials, um, you know studies particularly of safety outcomes. Uh, you know, you might say, and I can remember as being a pharmacy student. Um, and uh, my preceptors kind of tell me about all the, the challenges and, and concerns about observational research. And I said, well, why do we even do observation? What is the point? Why don't we just randomize everything? Um, which, you know, that might, you know, that sounds like a, a fairly uh, easy idea to get on board with. Sounds what my students would ask me today. <laughs> right, right. What's the point? Why don't we just randomize everything? And in a perfect world, that might be what we could do, but in reality, we can't, we, we just, if that is not feasible. Um, so, you know, the average, you know, to randomize a thousand patients into a study, you're talking on average 10, $20 million. Um, so it's extremely expensive. It takes a, uh, a lot of effort and a lot of time, you know, it takes years and years to randomize patients. Um, so that, uh, and, and we have a limited amount of resources to go around, um, uh, you know, so which questions should we go after? And, and so we tend to only go after the most important questions, the ones with the, the most evidence are the ones that we go after with randomized controlled studies. And um, and another important issue is that um, uh, there are a lot of ethical uh, issues that, that arise. So, um, you know, smoking is a great example. Would it would it be ethical? Would you include, you know, would you randomize a patient or would you be comfortable with a family member being randomized to smoke cigarettes for 20 years to determine whether or not cigarettes cause um, lung cancer? And, you know, likely the answer to that question would be no. Most people would say no. That I don't think that that is... Um, that is ethical. Uh, and so there are lots of related questions where, um, you know, the, the ethical concerns really limit what we can do with randomized controlled trials. For, de for decades now, the question of what should the proper vancomycin concentration be, right? What should we target troughs? Which trough should it be AUC? Um, you know, would you, and, and we could answer that question with a randomized controlled trial. Would you randomize a patient with MRSA pneumonia to a trough of five to 10 and compare that to a trough of 15 to 20? Now there may be there may be good and a good argument for that, but many clinicians would be comfortable um, on doing that. So uh, and so that that is one of the uh, Achilles heels of drug drug interaction research as well is, is that you know oftentimes it's going to be difficult to, to make the case to, that we're going to randomize patients to a drug combination, specifically to study a safety outcome, and for that for that reason, um, uh, we're left with observational methods as really you know sometimes our only option. So if we're going to learn about an interaction, we're going to have to use observational methods. 
Uh, and, and so there are a couple, right? So, you know, you could study for years the, the methodology, but there's, you know, some key issues that kind of always come up in drug, drug interaction studies and, and, you know, I would say uh, any observational study of drug effects. So the, the first is confounding by indication. Um, and so, you know, that, that's re referring to the, the idea that, um, you know, we don't give drugs at random. We give, we prescribe drugs typically to maximize benefit while minimizing the risk of adverse effects. So the result is that patients that are treated with a given drug typically are substantially different from patients that are not treated. And they're different in ways that are related to risk for the outcome of interest. So comparing treated versus untreated um, is, is oftentimes a, an apples and oranges comparison. And so if you see differences in the outcome of interest, it's unclear what's driving that difference. Is it the difference in the exposure of interest or is it difference, uh, a difference in other characteristics um, that are risk factors for the outcome? So confounding by indication is, is kind of the Achilles heel of all observational studies of drug effects. Um, and so the most effective way to minimize confounding by indication is to use what's called um, a, a new user active comparator uh, design. So in the, in the example of um, the vancomycin and piperacillin-tazobactam question, one way to, to analyze, to examine that question would be to compare, you know, users of vancomycin with those given piptazo versus those without piptazo. And in that example, that's a, that's a classic setup for confounding by indication. A better approach would be to compare uh, patients treated with piptazo to patients treated with an, an alternative antibiotic. Uh, and so, and, and there've been a, a number of those studies. So it, it, in our study, we use cefepime as the active comparator. Uh, and what that does is it allows you to at least somewhat match for the underlying indication. So instead of comparing people who have an indication for gram-negative coverage to patients that do not have that indication. Now we're at least matching on the indication, uh, which will go a long way towards minimizing confounding by indication. And, and then, you know, on top of that, using methods like multivariable regression or propensity score methods where we try to, you know, control for as many known uh, uh, factors that, that may be, uh, uh, you know, increase the risk for the outcome. Um, so. So I would say, uh, if you're making a comparison, if you compare it, you know, you're interested in the effects of a drug versus no exposure, um, you should always try to implement an active comparator design if you can. Sometimes, you know, there isn't a good active comparator. So sometimes you're, you're limited in that, but that's, um, that study design is key. Um, so confounding by indication is a big issue. Uh, another really important issue, uh, which is probably less well-known than confounding, I, I think most folks are at least have some familiarity with the, with the issues of confounding, but a, a less well-appreciated, uh, but perhaps even more important source of bias is what's called immortal time bias. Uh, and so this refers to... Um, the phenomenon of kind of building in a protective effect for patients that are treated. So in any scenario where you're comparing patients who are treated with it, an intervention versus those that are not treated with the intervention, um, patients who are treated have to survive long enough to be treated so that you know from, from time zero for your study to the first dose of medication or the, you know, the, to the time of the intervention, kind of by definition, you know that patients had to survive that amount of time. So if, if a patient had a drug initiated on day five after entering a study cohort, then you, those five days from time zero to the first dose are by definition immortal, right? We know the outcome, you know, if, if it's a mortality outcome could not have occurred during those five days because they, you know, they had to survive long enough to be treated. And so 
that's that. So there's a survival requirement for treated patients. That is not true for people who go untreated. There's no survival requirement for untreated patients. Um, so this in a, um, you know, a standard kind of treated versus untreated paradigm, there's no survival requirement for untreated patients. So it builds in a survival advantage for treated patients. And, and the consequence is that this can lead to spurious protective signals. Um, so if you've ever seen a study where, and you know, statins are like a poster child for this, you see a study where they associate treatment with a statin with reduced risk of some outcome. And at first glance, you're like, how is that happening? How is a statin reducing you know, this outcome? Um, more often than not, if you look closely at the methods, it may be a mortal time bias that's driving this you know, uh, unexpected spurious protective association. Um, so there are a number of methods to deal with a mortal time bias. One effective method is again, to use an active comparator design. Um, and what an active comparator design is context is, is kind of applies a survival requirement to both the exposure of interest and the comparator. So if you have to survive long enough to be treated with drug A, you have to survive long enough to be also to be treated with drug B. Um, so that's one way to minimize um, uh, immortal time bias. Uh, but there are there are others that are, you know, we probably don't have time to talk about. Um, but I think that the key is that, uh, you know, all you, you know, all researchers, all readers of the medical literature need to be aware of immortal time bias um, and, um, uh, you know, how to how to diagnose that, that it's, you know, a bias in a study and, and then the methods for addressing it. And then the last thing that I would mention is, is selection bias. Um, uh, and so this has to do with, you know, the way in which we include patients into a study is associated with the outcome such that the association in the study population does not reflect the association in the general, you know, target population. And the most common way that selection bias occurs is when exclusion criteria are based on things that happen after time zero. So anytime that you exclude or include patients based on something that happens after time zero, you are, you know, you're running the risk of inducing selection bias into your study. Um, and so, uh, so that's, you know, really an important thing to be aware of. And, and the, the solution there is to, um, you know, to, if you're designing an observational study, an effective way to avoid both immortal time bias and selection bias is to kind of imagine that you were designing a randomized controlled trial where um, both, you know, assignment to drug A or drug B and screening for eligibility criteria are, call, are, are, are all happening at the same time. So a patient shows up in the emergency department, we screen them for eligibility, um, and then we randomize them to drug A or drug B, and that all happens on the same day. Uh, and and that, that avoids the issues of mortal time bias, that avoids issues of selection bias. Uh, and so, um, so there's a number of, uh, of papers that describe this approach. It's called the target trial approach, where your first step in designing your study is to design kind of your ideal target randomized controlled trial that you may not be able to do, but you use this trial as kind of guidepost for design decisions around your observational study. Um, yeah, so so I think those are, you know, obviously there's a lot more um, uh, to know about in terms of sources of bias and how to avoid them, but I, I think those are some fundamental things that that probably apply to, to every observational study. We're going to have to really take a finer tooth comb sometimes when I'm looking at um, baseline characteristics and inclusion and exclusion criteria from now on. Now, we're sort of nearing the end of our conversation today, but I have one more question for you. Um, what do you think are some drug, drug interactions that have gotten a bad rap? over the years that you feel need to be explored a little bit more? 
Um, yeah, well, I, I can talk about one that, that we've done some work in. So I'm uh, so interested in drug-associated acute kidney injury and particularly drugs that, um, you know, may be uh, result in synergistic uh, nephrotoxicity. So um, a, uh, a common uh, drug that we, we all, uh, at least when I was in school, we, we learned about was the combination of um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs in combination with RAS inhibitors, things like ACE, ACE inhibitors or, or uh, ARBs, angiotensin receptor blockers. Um, and so then the, the idea here is that um, you, you get synergistic effects on, on kidney function. So NSAIDs cause vasoconstriction of the afferent arteriole. That, that, that's the blood vessel going into the glomerulus. Um, and so that's, that vasoconstriction reduces blood flow uh, into the glomerulus, which can lower uh, glomerular filtration rate. So it lowers kidney function. But that reduction in blood flow can also lead to ischemia. So it can lead to ischemic kidney injury. Um, now, uh, uh, RAS inhibitors uh, cause uh, vasodilation of efferent arterioles. Uh, and so if, uh, so that also lowers intraglomerular pressure, which lowers GFR. Uh, and, uh, and so both drugs can cause a lower GFR. And when given in combination, it's thought that there's kind of a synergistic reduction of GFR, uh, which would lead to an increase in creatinine and would lead us to, you know, diagnose a patient with acute kidney injury. Um, so, uh, uh, like many drug-drug interactions, the, the evidence base for this for, for many years was largely case reports. Um, uh, th there have been a couple uh, controlled studies in, in outpatient populations that have kind of come to conflicting results. Uh, no one ha had looked at this interaction in a, in a large-scale, rigorous way in, in the inpatient setting. And so we we conducted a study using an active comparator design um, in hospitalized patients looking at the interaction between NSAIDs and RAS inhibitors. And, and what we found was that there wasn't uh, evidence of, of interaction between the two. Um, now, a caveat is that uh, the, the drugs, which is common in the inpatient setting, were given for fairly short durations. So the duration of concomitant therapy was three days on average. Um, uh, uh, so, you know, nevertheless, we, we didn't really see a, a signal of interaction. And so, and so the, the, the take home is that if you have a patient who's a good candidate for an NSAID, um, uh, whether or not they are on a, a RAS inhibitor shouldn't really affect your decision of whether or not it's, it's safe to use an NSAID or not. So, you know, a, a patient being on a RAS inhibitor may not be a reason to switch from an NSAID to an opioid. Um, so, uh, so one additional aspect related to this interaction is the nature of the outcome. So here, um, the concern is synergistic reductions in GFR. Uh, so, you know, NSAIDs reduce blood flow into the glomerulus. Uh, RAS inhibitors vasodilate downstream. Uh, and so that can cause a change in GFR. But what's not clear is how that downstream vasodilation would enhance ischemic effects uh, uh, of NSAIDs. So this might, this, you know, even if we showed that the interaction was associated with an increased rate of creatinine-defined AKI, it's, it would still be unclear whether that association represents kidney injury, like a, a, an increased occurrence of ischemic injury or merely changes in kidney function that are not associated with an, you know, increased injury. Um, so uh, so th this is an area, it's, a, it's another example uh, highlighting the, you know, the limitations of our standard biomarker creatinine uh, what could help us sort this out are some of these newer biomarkers like NGAL or CHEM1 that are markers 
that directly reflects kidney injury um, that, you know, hopefully uh, over time we, we, we get studies that, that use those markers and, and, and give us more definitive answers. I like there's so much here that in the next 10 years, I'm going to be talking to students and I'm going to have a, well, back in my day type of story <laughs> and that'll kind of come up from some of your, the work that you're doing. Um, I really want to thank you for joining us today. I mean, there's so much I would like to go on and discuss with you. Maybe we'll have to have you back for another episode, um, but I appreciate you being here with us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed uh, our conversation and, and would you know be happy to come back anytime. Wonderful. And to the listeners, I want to thank you for joining us in this episode of the ATS RX podcast. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode and we look forward to you joining in on another episode in the future. Thanks for listening. Bye.